From those in the know to those who need to know, this is the Indie Weekly Podcast. All right, welcome back to the Indie Weekly Podcast. So today we're sharing with you a keynote interview from last year's Music Pro Summit. With it, it features two titans of Canadian radio, Alan Cross and John Pericle. Together, they dig into the present and future health of the radio industry. And you know, despite not getting the attention of, say, like streaming or TikTok and these other newer mediums, broadcast radio, like FM radio, remains hugely important to the music industry and is still very influential when it comes to getting new music discovered and popularized. And so this was a very fascinating conversation with, like I said, two people who have really lived the radio industry and certainly know what they're talking about. So I hope you enjoy it. I know you'll find it valuable. And uh, just a heads up, like I mentioned, this is a conversation from the 2022 Music Pro Summit. Our next edition of that online music industry conference is coming up from September 5th to 7th of this year, 2023. So you can go to musicprosummit.com and check it out as uh, announcements are starting to roll out. And there's currently a uh, early bird ticket discount where you can save $20. So again, just go to musicprosummit.com. But before we get to this week's conversation, we first have to acknowledge that the land on which Indie Week is based is the traditional territory of the Haudenosaunee, Wendat, Ashinaabe, Métis, and the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation. We must also thank our sponsors and funders. Those are Slate Music, CD Baby, CMRRA, Lyric Find, Banzoogle, The City of Toronto, Global Affairs Canada, Ontario Creates, Factor, Seneca College, SEMA, SOCAN Foundation, and our newest sponsor, Cox & Palmer, who provide legal services in Atlanta, Canada. We also acknowledge that this project is funded in part by the Government of Canada. Without the support of all of them, we couldn't do the work that we do for the music community. So a big, big thank you to all those companies, organizations, and government bodies. All right, let's get to this week's conversation. Hi, everyone. Uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, this is an excellent opportunity for a couple of radio guys to let us let everybody know that uh, radio is not dead. Uh, radio is still very powerful, very profitable, and uh, very popular amongst uh, many, many people around the world, some in more territories than other. And it is not going away anytime soon, even though the doomsayers say that there's uh, all kinds of issues. Now, that's my opinion. Uh, John Paracol, Joint Communications, may have other things to say about it. Hi, John. Well, there we were unmuted now, right? Excellent. So I said hi, Al. <laughs> so uh, am I wrong? Radio is still popular, powerful, and, uh, and um, popular, powerful, and profitable. It's less of all three, but all three are true. Yeah, it, it, it's less popular, it's uh, less powerful, and it is... It might be still as profitable because they just keep cutting costs over left, right, and center, but it's not an industry like it was, say, 20 years ago before the internet, for example. Um, but it, but it's still out there. It's still got a good audience. It's still, it's still popular. And uh, yeah, people are making money off it. And we're talking about two different kinds of things right now. We're talking about terrestrial over-the-air radio, which will include satellite radio in that as well. But uh, we'll also include the the fact that, that radio is redefining itself in the sense that 
This is an industry that for 100 years has been making great audio entertainment. So maybe the word radio has to expand to include things like on-demand programming, um, audio, um, what else can we put in there, um, podcasts, um, audiobooks, uh, any number of things. Would you agree with that? Yeah, audio entertainment it, with the big except you can get almost anything online, including mainstream legacy radio. The, when you've got a radio in your car, you can only get radio or you got to switch to something else, such as Sirius XM or if, if you've got you know CarPlay and Apple or something like that. So it, it is not quite a level playing field on both sides. I think we're going to come back to that in just a bit. But first of all, let's talk about how we got this far. Um, after World War I, radio technology was declassified and made available to the general public. So we're seeing a lot of radio stations celebrate their 100th birthday this year, uh, including Canada, including in the UK, including a number of radio stations in the United States. Do you want to just talk about how we got from that point in 1922 to where we are today? Luckily, I wasn't born in 22, but in, in 1922, when radio came out, it was basically, it, it took, you know, Marshall McLuhan had this great line that each new medium takes as its content, the form of the medium it replaces. So as soon as radio came along, it stole everything from live theater, from variety shows, from vaudeville, that became the content for radio, that and charlatans. There were a lot of like patent medicine salespeople and everything who who took over radio. Then religion moved in, but and then eventually, as the network started to build with radio, they began doing more news information, and it kind of moved towards what we recognize these days. Uh, and then at that at that point, radio stayed the same from about the 1940s right through into the 50s, and it was technology that changed it. It was the transistor radio, which is something that anybody under the age of probably 45 doesn't know about. But the transistor radio changed the world. It was a little radio. Sony was the big driving force in it. And you could listen to what you wanted to listen to. You didn't have to listen with your parents in the living room with a big old radio like we used to have back in the day. And uh, so suddenly you could listen. And it took a very short period of time for some smart people to invent top 40 radio. They took the content of the jukebox and put it on the radio. And, and so Top 40 was invented and teens and moms particularly listened to the same music. And teens could listen to whatever they wanted to listen to. So in their bedrooms with the transistor radio, it was kind of the first social media, if, if you want to look at it. Because you went to school the next day and said to your friends, did you hear so-and-so? And they made a request and they did that. And, and so AM introduced mass audience for music. In, in for a narrow type of top 40 music. And then from there, FM came along and introduced stereo and album cuts and, and you had AOR radio, which is what I think Lee Abrams did, which was basically radio for boomers in the beginning. And then you got beautiful music. You began, FM began to specialize radio more and more, particularly around audio fidelity. Then the internet came along and you got the internet and Napster. And you got file sharing, which kind of suddenly you didn't have to wait and listen to the radio to hear the song you wanted in 25 minutes. You could have it right now if somebody shared a file with you. It was primitive, but it was life changing. Then along came file purchases and Apple did that. They really drove it with the iPod. Suddenly you could buy a file for a dollar, which is no one would pay that today. But back then they did and they thought it was brilliant. They sold what a billion in a week. 
Um, and, and, and so now you started the frag massive fragmentation of audio. It started going all over the place. And then streaming came along. And what streaming did was it drove tribalism. So suddenly you had tribes. You, you didn't have mass anymore. You had a group of people who liked this. Not just album music, but I like music by Van Morrison and everybody who sings Irish songs. And suddenly you had music for them. And, and they were basically streaming created radio stations for tribes. It created files for tribes. And as you got into Spotify, you got into Apple and, and you got into the rest of the people who began offering up whatever you wanted, suggested playlists. It, it became atomized. I call it atomized and tribalized. And that's really where we are. And that's kind of the leading edge of the wave. And the, the backwash off the wave is the legacy media who still have audiences, but are struggling to deal with the fact that outside of curation, you have to give up a lot to listen to them, including you have to give up your time to listen to a lot of commercials. Does that answer your question on getting us here? Or is there? Yeah, I, I guess so. One of the things that, that we have today are a bunch of, like you said, self-organizing communities that come together online and then break apart and then come together in another form online. The the corollary of that, though, is that there is no center to music anymore. There's no the stars of today aren't nearly as big as they you they were in the 60s, 70s and 80s. Is that a wrong supposition? No, it's absolutely right. I mean, you take a look, look at someone like Shania Twain, a good Canadian. Shania Twain sold stunning numbers of records. Now, she was really good with video and really good at touring, and they were great songs. But you never see anything like that. Alanis Morissette selling 20 million copies of one album. You just don't see that anymore. It's, it's very, very much changed. It's demassified. Uh, it, and the reason is there's just too much choice. There, there's too many things you can listen to. And I don't know anyone who hasn't gone down the rabbit hole at least once a day, where they were planning on doing one thing, ended up following through on something else, listening to music they hadn't planned to listen to, and suddenly it's two hours later. And it's not so, just music, it's TikTok, it's YouTube, it's anything online. You can get down these rabbit holes and all of a sudden a couple of hours um, disappears. And yeah. what you thought was going to be an intense music listening session, turns out to be you're watching people doing goofy dances on TikTok. And, and again, yeah. the... the, the we end up with with you know more fragmentation, more stratification, more segmentation. Um, I, I often tell a story, uh, but when I was in grade ten, there were thirty people in the class, and of those thirty people in the class, maybe five of them were country music fans, five of them were pop music fans, and the other twenty were Kiss fans. And the reason they were Kiss fans is because the guy on the radio said that Kiss was the greatest band in the world. He went to the drugstore to pick up a music magazine. Who was on the cover? Kiss. Well, that must mean they're the greatest band in the world. You went to the record store. What records were logged? Uh, were, were racked up front? Kiss records. So the, it's very hard for people today to understand the kinds of consensus that we had back in the day. And I don't want to sound like Grandpa Simpson here, but we had a tremendous amount of consensus about what was good. And we rallied around all those things. That meant that there were fewer artists getting attention, but the attention that those artists were getting was exponentially larger than the attention a lot of artists are getting today. If you go to Spotify analytics, uh, apparently 20% of all the songs on Spotify have never been streamed once. 
there's uh, an API that you can get called Forgotify. And if you sign on to Forgotify with your uh, Apple, or with your, sorry, with your Spotify ID, you will get a constant stream of songs that no one's ever heard before except the creators. And if uh, the, the stats are true, 60,000 new songs are being uploaded online every day. So yeah, there's too much music and there's too much uh, for, for people to keep track of. So doesn't shouldn't that mean that radio has an opportunity here to take us back to the old days where we only got to hear the good stuff? Yeah, I think that that's what, I think curation, as I mentioned at the beginning of this, is, is still one of the things radio's got. It's got two issues, though. I issue number one is that it's almost entirely reactive to music. And, which is, and issue number two is just big, long blocks of commercials because the rating system is such a piece of garbage. Yes, I'm going to say that. Mm -hmm. um, that. That it's built in such a way that everybody has to play the same game, which is to stack all their commercials in one in two pods in an hour. Otherwise, they're not going to get the ratings they need to get. But basically, I think the biggest issue is how reactive radio is. I was thinking in preparation for this session when Dave and I started Q107 in Toronto. And every Sunday, we would listen all day to music. We've got all these new albums. We sat down with them. You know, admit that you know, we probably broke the law while we were listening to them a few times with some of the things that we imbibed to, uh, to increase our awareness of what the music would be like. But we would listen to dozens and dozens and dozens of albums and look for songs that we thought should be on the radio. And then later, you know, you talk to the DJs and the, you, you really care and try and find them. There's no reward for that for today's program director. Today's program director basically lives in a punishment world which is don't take any chances, don't screw anything up, just keep it going the way it is, make sure the song's a hit. And if I could return to what you asked about earlier, are there any stars as big as there were before? And I mentioned Shania Twain back in the day and Alanis Morissette for a couple of Canadians, but take a look at the new Beyonce album. It came out, it got so much hype back in 1986, that would have done the job for them. But it didn't do the job because it wasn't really good enough. And, and so that's one reason we don't have songs as strong as we used to. But let me go to people like Bad Bunny, who in a million years wouldn't have gotten on the radio back in the day and has a huge following. Um, they're doing something for their audience. So that's the freedom today is that if you've got something, the chances are if it's extraordinarily interesting, I'm not saying good, interesting, it'll catch on. That's why TikTok has it, has its success. Those little tiny 30 second bits and 20 second bits are really interesting for 20 seconds, like a shot of sugar. I, so, so I think that's the other thing is just change it. As you said, too much content. Let's talk about the business of radio. Um, we're on opposite sides of the border. Things in the United States are substantially different than they are here in Canada. Talk about the uh, state of American radio, because as America goes in North America, a lot of other things follow. So explain what's happening in the industry down there at the moment. Well, the business of radio has always been the same business. Show me the money whether it's in Canada or whether it's in the US or I mean, I've worked all around the world, Australia, England, France, South America. It's always, they wanna make, the people who own radio, they wanna make money. The problem was consolidation. 
And what happened was they stripped the competition out of radio. And that was the thing that made radio so interesting. And it, at one point made radio really relevant because stations competed against each other. About 20% of them were always losing money because there wasn't enough money in the marketplace. So somebody was going to buy them and try something new. So there was this constant freshening of the ecosystem in radio. With consolidation, the game became, let me play to control as much of the advertising radio dollar as I can in the market. And that's always going to be a safe game. And it became much worse when the internet came along and then satellite radio, people underestimated satellite radio as an impact on mainstream radio. When we did the first research with Lee Abrams for to launch what was at that point called XM radio. And the market was huge. We looked at it. This was back in like 2010, 11, uh, no, no, 2000, whenever the 9-11 was, early 2000s. And, and we were shocked at how big the opportunity was for satellite radio. And, and it's still out there. And in the U.S., just south of Canada, you know, they got 30 million subscribers. But the rest of radio stations are having trouble financially, mostly because there's no imagination. They're owned by private equity mentality people who don't want to take any chances, who wanted to cream all the money off that they could cream off it, and this is in the U.S., and then get rid of it to the next person. And then eventually the musical chairs stopped and everybody got stuck with what they got. I wish they would all go bankrupt and then start again because I think you'd actually have a much more vibrant radio business in the U.S. If they went bankrupt, they got rid of their debt load, they didn't have to worry about paying that, and, and they could take more chances. I think that's one way that radio could really come back. And Canada is different, but not different. The, the only difference in Canada is it's even more concentrated because the telecoms have got their hands in a lot of different types of media, and they don't know what to do. I mean, they'll pretend they do, but if you've seen some of the debacles that have taken place in Canada with the way telecoms have handled television, uh, news, uh, radio, it, it hasn't been good. So I think here you're in very much the same situation. If you disaggregated some of this concentration, you may get a more vibrant industry. Well, the, the industry right now is pushing for consolidation. Right now, consolidation in Canada is extremely limited. In the U.S., there are some markets where one company will own you know, eight radio stations plus whatever's left of the newspaper plus one or two TV stations. We don't have that in Canada yet, but they, there's lobbying to make that happen. And uh, that is worrisome for some people, but it's also an opportunity to make money for others. They say that this could be the, you know, the savior of terrestrial radio in Canada. Well, two things, if I could comment on that. First of all, yes, somebody can own eight stations in the U.S., but the market may have 55 stations and it might have in the suburbs and surrounding areas another 30 or 40. Canada doesn't have that. So as a proportion, the highest concentration as a proportion of total radio isn't as big. Okay. Uh, the other thing is that Canada in its history, I, I, I grew up in Canada, as you know, and I took history in school. And I was fascinated by something called the family compact. And the family compact was basically five families that ran Canada way back in the days of Quebec and Ontario. And it hasn't changed much in media. Oh, you know, 200 years later, we're 150 years later, we're still in a place where um, a small group of people, some family owned, um, control a lot of media. So I, I wouldn't be optimistic in believing that concentration 
of all of these things under one company is going to help anybody except the company that owns it because money has no heart and imagination is the first casualty of the search for profit with rare exceptions. All right. Radio isn't going away, whether the motivation is creativity or money. Uh, where do you see it going? And then I have a follow-up to that. Okay. I see AM in terribly serious trouble because of electric cars, because they don't work. It doesn't work. And I mean, Tesla has no AM radio. So, so one of the first places that I see a real issue for AM radio is electric cars, and they're not doing much. There are so many ways that AM radio could give itself another life. I'm working with one in the, in the US right now, and we're about to do something very daring, I think, but they have nothing to lose because otherwise they've lost. And the electric car is the reason. Um, where, where is radio going? Uh, I think if, if, we, if we don't change the model, and it starts with the bad rating system, then it, radio is going to continue to chug down a little bit. And, and the bad rating system is you've got a city like Toronto, which is arguably 6 million people, and, and 500 people, 600 people, they'll claim 1,000 people. I don't care if it's 1,000. Um, it it's, counts for all the measurement. It's just not enough. For the number well, I'll give you an example. You know, the radio stations that I work with are very concerned with people between the ages of 18 and 34. And the people who carry around these personal people meters, these things that measure ratings, uh, are, are, are absolutely vital to the future well-being at the radio station. And we look at what we call a panel of, of people between 18 to 34. It can be as small as 35 people determining the listening habits and preferences for all the 18 to 34 year olds in the Toronto area. That's, that's nuts. It's, 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 you get one person changing um, or you change out one person who has different allegiances as the person they're replacing and everything changes. It's all, it all goes upside down. Yeah, I can, I got two comments on that. The first one is that that's true and that it's a very, it's a very, very big issue. Um, and the second one is that, it doesn't matter, okay? It because here's where they've really got it wrong. And and I I was having a conversation with a group owner a couple of weeks ago in the U.S. and they were saying the only thing that matters to advertisers is twenty five fifty four. And I said, you know, that argument's been going on forever, just forever. And 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 have you tried to change their mind? And they go, well, we can't. Well, it's true. I said, it's actually not true in both Canada and the U.S the largest amount of disposable income that's being spent in the billions and hundreds of billions of dollars is by the baby boomers. That's why stations like Boom in Canada came along and took everyone by surprise because they all had their heads up their asses because they were looking at 1834 and 2554. Boomers have the most money and they spend it. They got this model built. They still using a model from like 1948 where they think that when people get to a certain age, they sit in a chair and, and clip their coupons and don't go out and don't do anything. I went to Van Morrison last week. And I would say that, and the tickets were pricey. They were crazy expensive. The cheapest one was 150 bucks. And they were, and they were selling on StubHub for even you know, $1,000 and more. 85% of the people at that crowd, and I figured Van did about, you know, probably took home six, 700,000 that night, were baby boomers. 
And all the rest were younger people who just wanted to go. So they're spending money. So this whole idea of 1834, 2534 is such a dated concept in the age of targeted advertising. But radio, because it has a complete failure of imagination at the sales side, isn't doing anything to try and figure out another way to do anything. There's I'm, another problem. Sorry. There's, there's another problem, too, is if you go to the agencies, uh, they all want to spend digital dollars. Oh, yeah. traditional radio, traditional television? No, 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 no. It's all digital, 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 because they think that they can actually measure the response to digital advertising better than they can anything else, which is probably true. But at the same time, they're ignoring all the people who, who are still listening through traditional means. Yeah, as a, there's a failure of imagination on the sales side, the advertising side. The highest failure of imagination is right there in radio. Now, I, I've been to England, I've been to uh, Australia, and things are a little bit different there. Radio in those two countries seems to be, well, if, if not thriving, at least doing well with the status quo. Do you want to comment on that? Yeah, I mean, I worked in Australia for quite a few years, and yeah, it's a very different country. It, it's in the middle of nowhere. They're basically isolated from everybody else. So they've got internet and everything, but they they're... They care about how everybody's feeling about each other. They want to know what's going on. And I think it's a great way of communicating. And there's great distances like Canada that, that people go over. So I think there it works. In England, I don't know what the latest data is, but I worked over there and have been kind of keeping track of it. And, and I'm, I'm seeing the slippage of radio. I'm seeing the increase. And it all comes down to what does it cost you to get broadband and what does it cost you to get a phone? Because those are the true driving forces for in all those countries. It was very, very expensive to get broadband, to get digital you know, connectivity. It was very expensive. Phone services were expensive. And those have come down dramatically. And as they do, it's, they're reshaping the market. And, and the same thing's happening in South America. Okay, let's let's look at um, rating systems because we keep coming back to that. Now we we have one in Canada. There's a similar one in the United States. Uh, they do it differently in Australia, and they also do it slightly differently in the UK. What makes their rating systems more interesting, more accurate than ours? I don't know that they're more accurate. They may or may not be. I haven't dug into the stats on that for a while. I mean, I ran a market research company for 35 years and I was very, very involved in reliability of data. Um, but when I was working over in England and when I was working in Australia, at the end of a long day, I didn't see that they were that much more accurate other than they had fewer radio stations. Hmm. And, and so you can, because of that, you're, you're going to have a more accurate measurement because there's, you're not slicing and dicing. As you said, one person may have one meter in Canada and it's going to affect a station like CFNY, um, which is ridiculous. So, so that is one variable is the number of radio stations you've got. All right. Let's, let's talk about this failure of imagination. Radio is going to be forced to, we hope to do something. Uh, to to drag it further into the digital era. Uh, but because it continues to work well enough 
it's kind of like changing the wings on an airplane that's flying at 38,000 feet. It's doing well enough so that you have to, you're still returning money to your shareholders and your investors and to your ownership. But at the same time, you realize that this can't continue unless you evolve into something different, something that meets the needs and wants and wishes of the digital generations, uh, you're going to eventually crash. So what does radio, terrestrial radio, and the companies that run these stations, what do they need to do? They need to do a lot more creative ideation. And nothing scares a large corporation than creativity and ideas. I'm not being facetious here. I mean, it's true. They're scared of them. First of all, it might cost them money because really good creative people do have to be managed and they're, you know, shall we say eccentric sometimes. Uh, and, and the second is if I can, if there's no punishing consequence for failing to create, then I'll fail to create. I mean, I go to back to Q107 back in the day and we were, we had a, we wrote the license application and we put crazy things on it. Like back then 30% CanCon and what was called foreground programming, which is spoken word. And, and we made a promise to do a lot of it. And I remember Alan Slate almost had a heart attack when we got the license because he thought we bankrupt him. He was walking around like yelling and shouting and you're going to bankrupt me. You're going to kill me. This I should sell this. And, and we were all laughing saying, just chill. We'll make it work. We put a show on Saturday nights, 11 o'clock. It was called High Witness News. This is 1978. Okay. High Witness News was news in the world of drugs, mostly crazy Cheech and Chong type stories. Highest ratings on a Saturday on any radio station in Toronto at 11 o'clock Saturday night, cost nothing to produce. Mark Daly was the voice that great talent Mark was. Um, and, and he read for 15 minutes this, and people tuned in why they couldn't get it anywhere else. It was brilliantly done. Mark was such a great writer and, and, and voicer. That imagination didn't cost anything. And, and I think Tony Viner and Slate didn't even know it was on, which is where it would have come off. But but um, but imagination is still something that that there's lots of room for it, and it's really taken a back seat. And I think part of the reason is creative, imaginative people have so many more options these days. They can work in the internet. They can do a startup. They can be social influencers. They they don't have to go to a radio station and work there. And I think the other part just is that. The corporate people got there because they could read Excel spreadsheets, not because they studied English literature in university. We should talk about poor program directors and music directors. Back in my day as a program director, I had one radio station to look after, one. And that yeah. was enough to drive me insane. Uh, today, it's not uncommon for somebody to look after two, three, four radio stations with all the talent that they have and all the different formats that they may be executing. Um, and they may be in charge of uh, of a group of radio stations. For example, in the U.S., we have things called format captains, where mm -hmm. you know, four or five people will have their uh, – will, will divide up the company's holdings into various formats and then be responsible for, for in some cases, hundreds of radio stations. That's unsustainable. I mean, <laughs> like I say, my head almost exploded running one radio station, running eight or running a hundred. I can't imagine. No wonder there's a, a failure of creativity. Yeah, I think that's true. Now, a, a, and 
the consequence, as I said, as long as there's no punishing consequence for failing to imagine, then you'll fail to imagine. But there was a brilliant guy. He was a little twisted as a human being, and and uh, it unfortunately cost him a, a lot his opportunities uh, just because he was politically very incorrect about a number of things he did in a lot of different ways. Named Randy Michaels. Randy was one of the smartest guys I ever met in radio. <clears throat> one day we were talking about when consolidation came. We said, "What? What's going to happen here?" And and he had this vision. He was right. He said, "In, in the end, one company is going to own every radio station." We, we were laughing about it. We said, "You know, how far is it going to go?" And then we started saying, "Well, what what could you do? What if you did own four stations, eight stations? What if that ever happened?" Which it did. And Randy had this idea. And by the way, the reason I'm sharing this now is because there is a radio group in the U.S. doing this. So you know what I want to do? And this is like back in the 90s, he, before we had the Internet really going, before we had the kind of communication. He said, I want to hire the very best DJs ever, like brilliant, creative, smart DJs. And I want them to do a bunch of formats for me. And I'm going to set up a clock. And what I'm going to do is have the clock set up in such a way that, let's say, this DJ Bob, I'll call him. DJ Bob is on a country station. We, he opens the mic and the country station's in Kansas City. And he starts talking, hey, look out for that tornado that's coming. And we're, and he's faxing, they're faxing these DJs, this in, faxing, if you can imagine, this information. And, and then right after they do the tornado thing, they go over and do the rock station in uh, San Francisco. And, and they talk about the concert that's coming and they, you know, do a whole thing. And they literally walk around the table doing breaks for different stations. But these DJs were so good and so creative and so smart, they could do it and they get paid a lot of money for it. He wanted to do that and he had a plan to do it, but it, it didn't happen for a bunch of reasons. iHeart in the U.S. is now doing that. Now, the difference is that they're not doing it with the kind of imagination that I think needed to be done, but they have set up a complete system for DJs, everything to be done remotely, everything state, you know, this, they have no local in a lot of places. That's the failure, I think. <clears throat> Without local, you really have an issue. But if they were smart enough to hire two really brilliantly talented local people in Scranton, Pennsylvania, and they were feeding to these centralized DJs who were doing it, that's people would listen more. It's because you'd say things like the rain's just about to stop. If you've been, you can turn off your wipers now and then go back to music. That's what people relate to the most mm -hmm. basic human and the keyword shared experience. So it can, it's happening right now. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I know somebody that uh, does a midday shift in Toronto and uh, at simultaneously does three other radio stations across Ontario. And uh, that's really efficient. You have big talent in smaller markets, but at the same time, the smaller market positions aren't there as a farm system for the bigger markets. And, and yeah. that's created a problem. Right now, if you wanted to hire a morning show anywhere in Canada, good luck finding somebody of, of that you know former, of the caliber that we used to have. It's, it's, it's nearly impossible. Yeah. It is nearly impossible. I agree with you. The farm system is a very big deal. It was always inefficient, the farm system, and because what it did is it filtered through by trial and error, people got up. You, can, you could cut the number of people in those functions. You could train morning shows. I mean, we built morning shows back in the day by taking people out of pizzerias. 
back in the eighties, we, we'd find, you know, somebody who was really funny in the pizza place and say, you want to be on the radio? And they'd say, yeah. So what we taught them was radio. It's much easier to teach someone how to act, work radio than it is to teach someone to be imaginative, engaging, and connecting with others. Uh, and I think that's another failure. It's not just the farm system of discovering them from radio, but when your program director is handling four or five radio stations, uh, then, it, then it's a whole different ballgame. They have no time. And the kind of people, with all the greatest respect, and some exceptions, the kind of people who take those jobs now have learned very well to play the corporate game. They're not going to come up with a daring idea. They'll never suggest anything that's going to cost money. They don't have the time to develop people. They won't hire a Valerie Geller or some of the other talent trainers who could train someone up to be a really good morning show um, because they're going to be punished for wanting to spend money. And as I said, when you have a culture of punishment, uh, it's a whole different ballgame. And there are exceptions. There are exceptions. I know people are all going to tell me about their station in Perry Sound or, you know, in Moose Jaw that that does something. But but um, there's only if the exceptions prove the rule. I want to talk about exceptions in just a second. But first of all, I want to go back into some technicalities. Uh, we have AM, which is in a lot of trouble. We have FM, which is still with us. Um, we have HD radio, which... <laughs> or, or do we have HD radio? Do you want to talk about what that is and why it has failed to catch on? It failed because it was a ridiculous idea. Okay. Because what you do, HD radio strips the dynamics from your signal. So it's, let's say I got a radio station, CHFI in Toronto. Uh, I'm going to take pieces of that signal and turn them into another channel or channels that I can only hear on a radio that I've got to go out and buy that receives those channels and not give you anything special enough that someone wants it. I mean, I saw this in the US, I consulted a number of groups and said, don't do HD, but there's a bandwagon effect in any business. And there was a bandwagon effect there. Um, HD, there was no way it could work. It couldn't have a large enough audience for traditional advertisers. They weren't willing to pay for it. The listeners weren't because first they had to buy a radio, which cost them two to four hundred dollars to listen to HD. Um, and, and at the same time, exactly that HD was trying to find its feet. Satellite radio came along and back when it first started, it was like 10 bucks a month uh, and, and said, you can listen to me anywhere in your car and you're going to get a bunch of good stuff. So HD was a bad idea that never should have been around in the first place that ruined the sonic quality of a lot of fm stations and therefore pushed people towards satellite which had better sound just at the time when that was the last thing they needed bandwagon effect I now guess. if you if you've bought a car over the last five or seven years you probably have an hd radio and don't know it uh and there are some stations that are for example yeah. you know am radio stations which have um low fidelity to begin with have, have been broadcasting in HD radio. And then there are some radio stations that broadcast alternate programming, but you're right. The bandwidth is, is such that it um, doesn't sound as good as FM. No, it doesn't. And, and by the way, I just did buy a new car. And once I figured out that I, I found the radio, just FM and AM in it, which was hard enough. Um, there was no HD. No, but but front no and, and but front and center was uh, satellite which came yeah. free for three months, 
which I already had because I have to have everything to keep up. So it it's um I I think the advertising model is the thing that that hamstrings radio. Now we, and, you talked about how nobody wanted to buy a new piece of hardware to listen to this radio, but in the um, UK, Australia, um, Norway, Switzerland, they're phasing out uh, traditional radio AM and FM for digital audio broadcasting, DAB radio, and DAB uh, radio sales are on their way up. Um, Norway is going to get rid of all analog radio broadcasting. Switzerland is moving in that direction as well. So it it can be done, but we will never get DAB, will we? No, and you especially won't get it in the U.S. because the because the owners don't want to spend it. They don't want no one wants to invest in it. Even back, I remember being in Europe and listening to DAB, and you know it has its issues, such as how far you, how far away you are from the transmitter. Uh, but but at the same time, in the U.S., no one wanted to invest in anything new technology for radio because they were making so much money off consolidating old radio. And and so I don't know. DAB is never going to happen here. I I it may there's a faint chance it could happen in Canada. I don't think so. But in the U.S., I don't think it's ever going to happen. Well, I, I heard too that uh, America was against it because it infringed on some military frequencies. Eh, yeah, but there's always ways around everything. There, you know, there's military. Yeah, there's military frequencies, and but it, that wasn't the issue. The issue was just they didn't want to spend the money. It's the same reason that. Uh, that the rating system so crappy that we have it's because the owners didn't want to spend the money they could have had a fabulous system they had to pay four times as much and they wanted to pay less because consolidation is all about paying less forever. let's switch to something well let's try to switch to something positive who's doing a good job and what what give us some highlights of some great radio around the world well i'll, I'll start with a serious exam I think they're doing a great job. They keep experimenting. They keep trying different things. They, their specialty channels are a great idea. You know, Bob Dylan channel for a month, Beatles channels, all the different things that they're doing. Now they've got a lot more. They're basically like they're a giant radio dial. But I think that they're doing a really good job. And and outside of that, I think all of the ones that are doing a good job around the world are just doing a good job of what great radio used to be. They're entertaining. They're engaging. They're funny. Um, there's not a lot of imagination uh, beyond just doing. There's nothing new. I mean, we had a chance. I to do a. Uh, we've had a chance to a couple of stations in the U.S. that were uh, that were new ideas for radio, and we got them all the way down, right down to when they had to spend money to do. Them. They paid. They paid for research, consulting. They paid for everything. And then they got down and they said, well, you have to spend $3 million to get this going. And it's like, yeah, well, we're not going to do it. Even NPR, we, we came up with a format for NPR that was a breakthrough way of doing local radio for New York City. And, um, and it was basically what I call top 40 spoken word. And it's very, very different from all news, which is top 40 news. But top 40 spoken word. And uh, once again, it came down to they didn't want to spend the money at the last minute because people are afraid to invest in radio. And mm. that's really too bad because I really believe that's the way you're going to get radio back. You're going to get it back by imagining, by coming up with creativity, by 
applying concepts of successful radio like top 40 to things such as spoken word. And, and uh, if you don't do it, then those people are going to go to the internet and become influencers or put their own music up on, uh, on, uh, the, on Spotify, you know, not get there, there's a, there's a big problem with attracting Gen Y and Gen Z to radio. They, uh, they, they don't get it um, in the sense that, you know, there was a guy driving with his daughter and a Taylor Swift song came on the radio and the daughter was bopping along to it. And then the song was over and she turns to uh, her father and says, play it again, daddy. And I, I can't, uh, it's, it's on the radio. What do you mean you can't play it again? So we're, we've got a couple of digital generations and a third one coming up, uh, whatever is after Gen Z. And, and they don't understand this non, this, this, this appointment listening situation. Uh, how do we attract younger people back to radio? Well, it's a real issue because if you think about it, when we were younger, we wanted to hear the same song over and over again. And top 40 was the closest it came. You know, they had a 55 minute clock on the number one song on the best top 40s back in the 70s on AM radio. I think that's it. The big the bigger issue is we've always wanted to listen to what we want to listen to. But the formats in which we got it were expensive. Records were really expensive. I mean, without, compared to how much money people earned. CDs were expensive and they weren't portable enough until you got CD players in cars. And But even then a CD player was a big thing. When you got it down to file size and you could, everything was more portable, people got what they'd always wanted, which is I want two things. I want you to expose me to new stuff that's, uh, that, that I'm going to love. And then when I love it, I'm going to want to have a repeated listen to it. And I think that's the challenge with the younger generation. So I think the way that you get them to listen is you have better talent on the radio around the records. Dare I say better commercials? I've only been fighting this battle for 40 years. Uh, I remember I came in the business when I, I came into the industry out of uh, another business. And I was like, these commercials are terrible. Why, why doesn't anything better get on the radio and there were always these committees and people talking about better commercials but it never happened why because actually nobody cared there were some that were brilliant but there mostly weren't which was really disappointing because i still think to this day that if you played with commercials it would be a big deal john hayes when he was running chorus radio he hired us to a research project and it was about how many songs do people want to hear before, and how many commercials afterwards do you have to play in order to get them to keep listening? And the answer was two songs, one commercial, two songs, one commercial, one song, two commercials. And that would have worked, especially if the commercials were good. But the rating system was so punishing on even trying anything like that, that they never did. So I just think that we're, I blame the rating systems. I think it's, it's, 90% of the problem is that the game is rigged against radio because it's so hard to experiment and try new stuff. Because when you do your ratings go down, because as you said, one 18, 34 year old has got one meter and they either turn it off or turn it on and change to another type of music and it all changes. I want to be more optimistic, but that's the place where the change can really happen. I think anybody who comes up with a viable Gen Z or Gen Y format is going to make a trillion dollars. It's just that somebody's going to be have, have to be so desperate to try this new format, this new untried format, 
um, before anybody gets a shot and they have to do it right. Otherwise, people will just condemn it as another failure. But I, that's my hope that there will be a Gen Y, Gen Z uh, format uh, for the masses coming soon. Uh, let's um, go through some audience questions here. Uh, Radio in Canada has CanCon, but what do you think of the bill? trying to be put forward this is bill c11 in regards to canadian content on streaming platforms uh radio and cancon has a big impact on royalty payouts for canadians it just it just how does that work tell me is this russia is this china where they i'm not allowed to listen to u.s streaming or one of my friends listens to a station in paris it's his favorite radio station and and what are we going to do say now you can't listen to any of them because we have to have cancon it, the greatest failure of imagination is at the government level in Canada. I mean, the CRTC has none. The, regu- the, the politicians have none. And I'll, I mean, I'll debate any of them as to whether they really have any imagination. They don't know how to think about entertainment. They think about it as something that you deliver with a club. Uh, flip it around. Lots of Canadians have been big all around the world. Uh, there's, there's, Exporting Canadian talent is a bigger deal to me than restricting stuff to listening to Canadian. You said Spotify has 20% of songs never get heard. Right. So there's no shortage of content out there. I bet a lot of it's Canadian along with other types. So there's no shortage. If you don't play something over and over, people don't get hooked on it. And these days, the way people listen in the TikTok world, I think the secret is to shorten songs to 30 seconds and, uh, and have every well, song. There's actually a band in the UK called the Pocket Gods, and they do exactly that. They know that they don't get paid for anything more than 30 seconds of a song on a streaming service. So they have released uh, albums with uh, titles like 30 by 100. 30 by 300 and 30 by 500. So they have a digital album with 500 songs ranging in length from 31 to 42 seconds. That fabulous. I love that. We did that back in the day after a music test. I was with a guy called John McGann. And after a music test, someone came up to us and said, can I buy the tape? And, and we said, what? He said, yeah, I really like the songs you played and they were the right length. And McGann said to me, we need to go on the radio and do a show called Twice the Music in Half the Time. So we did. We took all these songs and cut them down to half their length and put them on a four-hour block in the station. The ratings went through the roof, and the record companies went crazy. They um, Well, there, they was a, there was a station in, in Calgary that tried to do that. They, they edited everything down to two minutes, and then they, the labels came after them and said, you can't do this. Yeah. Yeah, they, they got us too, but two minutes is too long. I mean, it, it's horrible. It's a horrible truth, but most people only know the hook and they get that wrong. Um, so yeah, there are opportunities and you really want to do stuff. There's, But people don't like to hear that. I'm an artist. My song needs to be 11 minutes and 14 seconds long. Well, you can't make people do anything anymore. You have to respond to them. It's kind of sad in a way, but it's also exciting. Look There's a TikTok, whole conversation TikTok. here about there's a whole conversation here about uh, short detention spans and the skip button and uh, what that has wrought. It, it's more than that. It's our whole neural, the re, you talk about the younger generations, their actual brains are rewired, which is, has extreme long-term consequences for all of us. Their brains are rewired on attention span, especially, and the reason it's happening is because parents are letting their kids play with cell phones and all that digital stuff when they're, before the age of three 
and it trains their, your brain is, is soft wired when you're born It hardwires by around age three. And if you do that, if you let those things be babysitters, you end up with the TikTok generation. And, and that's where we are. And just reality, the whole neural system. You want the government to do something? They could pay attention to that instead of worrying about CanCon on a streaming platform. Just one comment about that. We live right next door here in the attic of North America to the largest net exporter of popular culture on the planet. It would be very easy for American culture to completely overwhelm Canadian culture uh, and turn us into a Kardashian nation. Um, that has already happened to a certain extent because American soft power is the most powerful type of power in, in, on, in the known universe. So uh, what would you say to Canadian artists who are concerned about being completely subsumed by American culture? Get with the program because people are the same when it comes to entertainment. They like the same movies. They like the same music. If It doesn't matter which side of the border you're on. They're going to like the, you know, there, there have been a few Canadian bands that didn't break out because of outside of Canada who were huge in Canada because they mismanaged it, but they should have been as big in the U.S. And, and the same in the U.S. There have been some bands in the U.S. that could have been huge in Canada that were mismanaged as well. They're not going to think they were because they all made lots of money. But, but basically, I've never bought this argument that our culture is going to be subsumed. Okay, I just won't buy it. Uh, because the Kardashians are disgusting and horrible. I'll, yes, I'll tell it to their face. But they fit, first of all, they're not even Americans. Okay? You know, they're Iranians. They come from the same homeland as my father's family came from. Uh, they figured it out. They figured out how they could get a lot of people to be attracted to them. I mean, you know, Katie Lang, when she first came out years ago, used to, you know, sing in a wedding dress. Uh, she, she didn't ruin American culture. She was embraced by American culture. Uh, so I don't think we're, I think the much bigger issues, which people aren't really qualified because they don't study it, it, it to fake, it's to face up to the fact that our neural systems are rewired. We have too much information. As a species, Homo sapiens love stimulation. Uh, as a species, we're naturally fearful rather than brave. Uh, and, and as a species, we're energy conserving, which means it's another way of saying lazy. Um, we're going to take the easiest thing to digest. And today, the easiest thing to digest is the sugar water of TikTok, uh, pop songs. Uh, you, you listen to Taylor Swift. I mean, I think Taylor Swift's really talented, but really, how many of those songs are interchangeable? Now, she can get all mad. She gets mad with people when they say these kind of things. But, you know, she's yes, she's talented. But you don't see huge imagina musical imagination in her song. She's got a formula. And um, that has nothing to do with subsuming a culture. It just has to do with the fact that as a species, we like repetition that we can hum with. Well, this, this explains why Max Martin is such a big deal, because he does have an actual mathematical formula that he uses for creating pop songs. And it's been you know wonderfully successful. And he's been a huge moneymaker. Um let's, I just want to talk about, we have a couple of minutes left here. I just want to talk about music cycles. The first 50 years of the 20th century was all about jazz, an American made uh, genre that in, was exported around the world and changed the way we, it, it changed everything from, I mean, when we started in 1900, the most common time signature in, in the world was three quarter time with waltz time. But when ragtime came along and changed everything to four, four time, that's really where we are today. 
Um, so the first 50 years was culture was driven by jazz. The next 40 ish years was driven by rock and roll. Are we now in an era where culture is being driven by hip hop or are we, uh, is it being driven in a different way than I'm looking at it? I think it's being driven by beat and rhythm. I mean, you and you can see it manifesting in all sorts of ways. You look at Max Martin's forms, it's always that, 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 boom, that, uh, you know, it's the hip, bring up the bass. It, 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 it's all beat because you don't need language. And then you get international, I call it planet teen. You get international sounds that work for everybody. And, and it's all the same. And that's, I think, one of the reasons the festivals are so big. With with all the with all of the different types of music, uh, which is all beat driven, because everybody can get along with everybody else in it, and I think that's really where we are right now: rhythm, beat, different versions of rhythm and beat internationally it are very very strong, and and we're in a phase of that that that's that's the international piece of it. On the you know on the other side ballad music and and music that has lyrics and basically watered down rock which is what a lot of today's country is it just took rock away from rock and and um watered it down a lot and made it formulaic is also very very successful in lots of parts of the world too uh so but i think beats the the new i, I don't hip hop's just a version of beat originally rap you know hip hop and rap originally were ways for people to get along with each other instead of fighting physically with each other outwrap them outsmart them uh then they got to the, they got the beat down and they got it down really well and then others began changing modifying the beat and and um i think that's where we are right now for the foreseeable future the bigger issue is the extent to which video rhythm and beat fuse i don't know what that's going to look like because it hasn't happened yet, because it's usually pictures with music or music with pictures. But I, I see some kind of fusing of video and, and sonics in a new way. When? I don't know, but I bet it's out there already. Because that's well, got to be the attention. We're, we're due for a new revolution. We haven't had a musical revolution uh, for quite some time. So, you know, maybe maybe it's Gen Z and Gen Y that are going to deliver it for us. Uh, thanks, John. That's been, I could go on for a lot longer. I've got a whole bunch of questions here that we never had a chance to get to. But this has been very illuminating. And uh, I hope everybody who is watching uh, has, has been able to take something away from this. Uh, Daryl's back from his uh, perch in Romania. Yes. Wow, what a good session. And I got to say... Um, Listening in my headphones, hearing your voice, Alan, talking about radio. What a great session and uh, um, what a powerhouse. Uh, I hope everybody has taken a lot from this. And uh, also note, uh, Alan, your website, A Journal of Musical Things, and your podcast, uh, Ongoing History of New Music, both really good quality. I hope everybody follows uh, those sessions. Is there anything else to plug, Alan, that I might have forgotten? No, that's that's enough. I'm doing a bunch of, uh, of things. But one of the things that I will say is that the reason I'm sitting here is because uh, this, this the radio stuff that I have been doing over the past 30 years does not conform to any rules. And everybody told me that it would not work. Yet here I am. So I just think I'm, uh, I'm, I'm living proof of John's point. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. And I've watched you since you first came up, Alan. I mean, yeah. it was... 
you know, you pushing against the tide and it worked and it's good to see. So you're proof to people it can be done. Okay. Thank you. And, right. and John, I was wondering if you had any last statements before we uh, sign off. I usually just try and rile everything up and uh, get people thinking and, and cause, cause that's the best thing for it. You, you've got a ton of really creative people at this conference and, and really engaged people who want to create people who want to make a difference uh people who want to make change uh and my thing in that is, is push the limits go way beyond don't study what everybody else has done because they're already better at it than you instead figure out what you can do that is original and and i mean i remember the first time i saw the tragically hip alan greg and i discovered them uh, and um, we, uh, he played me a cassette and I listened to it. I said, these guys are as good live as they are on this cassette. They got to be amazing. It was all stones and doors covers. And we went down and saw them and I saw the fusing of Jim Morrison and Mick Jagger with an original type of music that didn't follow all the formulas. And we both looked at each other and we said, you know what? I think here we're seeing something we've never seen before. And that was when Alan got behind it and he got Jake and, and, um, but I was one of the most exciting nights of my life because it was something I hadn't seen. They, that we can keep doing that. There's all different ways. So don't stop experimenting. The biggest thing of all is this. I'll give you this one piece of advice. 90% of anything is persistence, period. And there's tons of data to support it. It's true. Just keep going. Look at David Bowie. No one, no one was going to give him a chance, and he was not going to let them not give him a chance, and he changed the world. So, yeah, just keep going, just keep going. That's it. That's my. Awesome. Thank you so much, John. I really appreciate that. Thank you, Alan. Pleasure. And hey, if, if I could say one last thing, I grew up on WKRP and the <laughs> influence of. <laughs> knowing the radio dj that was our playlists they they helped curate our experiences growing up and i do miss that and i think that that's the part of the entertainment value that is missed from radio these days like i hear the same music every 40 minutes seems like on radio and and i missed uh you know a dj putting on something you've never heard before but it came from them uh that was the voice of the radio to me it was so all right, everybody. Thank you so much. We've got Thank you. one session. Thank you, Alan. Thank you, John. All right. So that does it for another episode of the Indie Weekly Podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this. And if you enjoyed these conversations that we share here on the podcast, then I think you would really love coming to the Indie Weekly webinars. Throughout the year, we're having them every Tuesday. They're always at 4 p.m. Eastern time. That's like New York or Toronto time. And it's all about high-level conversations, bringing in experts from all facets of the music and related industries to share their experiences, best practices, tips, advice, really actionable advice with artists. It's all about helping artists boost their own careers, but it's also about community, connecting with each other, connecting with the guests, connecting with Daryl Hurds, uh, who always hosts. And best of all, it's free. So go to IndieWeek.com, hit the Indie Weekly tab at the top of the page and see what's coming up. I think you'd really enjoy it. Certainly worth your time. We'd love to see you there. And last, but certainly not least, before we go, just one more shout out and thank you 
to our wonderful sponsors and funders. Uh, those are Slate Music, CD Baby, CMRRA, Lyric Find, Banzoogle, The City of Toronto, Global Affairs Canada, Ontario Creates, Factor, Seneca College, SEMA, the SOCAN Foundation, and our newest sponsor, Cox & Palmer, who provide legal services in Atlantic Canada. We also acknowledge that this project is funded in part by the Government of Canada. So without the support of all of them, us here at Indie Week, we couldn't do what we do to help out and work for the music community. So big thank you to all those companies, organizations, and government bodies. All right, that does it for another week. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you have a good one.